0: Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE President. Today's conversation is with Scott Sauls, Senior Pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church. The topic, Post-Election Guidance for Christians. Today's conversation is brought to you by Christian Community Credit Union, where faith and finances come together. You could save hundreds of dollars each month and get a free gift when you refinance your home loan with the credit union. Visit mycccu.com slash NAE to learn more. That's mycccu.com slash NAE. Join today and save. Christian Community Credit Union is not federally insured. Instead, each account is privately insured up to $250,000. Equal opportunity lender. And now, let's join in.
1: I'm Walter Kim here with Scott Sauls, the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Prior to Nashville, Scott was a lead and preaching pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, where he served alongside Tim Keller. Scott is the author of five books, Jesus Outside the Lines, The Friend, From Weakness to Strength, Irresistible Faith, and the most recent, A Gentle Answer, our secret weapon in an age of us against them. He's a very popular speaker and blogger and it's not difficult to understand why. We're grateful for your thoughtful pastoral voice and grateful that you've joined us today.
2: Thanks Walter, it's great to be with you.
1: So Scott, as we begin, can you uh, tell us a little bit about your call into ministry and how you actually ended up at Christ Presbyterian?
2: Well, calling to ministry traces all the way back to college. I converted to uh, the Christian faith uh, somewhere around the beginning of my senior year of college, uh, did not grow up in the church, didn't have really much of a context for the local church, but um, lost interest in all of the things that I had been studying to do uh, in college and uh, just started to feel this uh, this urge to explore what a life in Christian ministry might look like. Now, I had some barriers. I was terrified of public speaking. Um, you know, there, there, the there are two two particular classes in the history. I've I've always been a good student, but but two classes I got bad grades in. One was driver's ed, uh, and and the other was public speaking. And so so I had this this sort of fear, uh, but but also this kind of pull of urgency to explore ministry. Ministry And so ended up landing in a youth director position after college at a small church in Decatur, Georgia, which is uh, right outside Atlanta, Metropolitan Atlanta, and or part of Metropolitan Atlanta, and then ended up at Covenant Seminary. That's a short story. And then we ended up after that, met my wife, Patty, while at Covenant. And... Um, so we, we planted a church in Kansas City. Then we went to St. Louis to be part of another church plant, uh, where I was the lead pastor, and then got a surprise call from New York City and uh, worked there for uh, about five years before landing here at Christ Presbyterian in Nashville, where we've been for eight years.
1: Wow, that is fantastic. Clearly, God took care of your public speaking issue. I can't speak for your driving, but...
2: Uh, I certainly yeah, my wife even... and daughters do not think I'm a good driver, so I probably would not <laughs> be making a good grade there.
1: So, uh, Scott, we have just experienced a very close, a very contentious election in our country. How has your church navigated politics this year? How, how would you describe the political makeup of your church?
2: It's a very uh, interesting real-time question for us. So, We have um, a a diverse congregation in terms of political orientation, ideology, et cetera, and part of that is because of the kind of leadership that we try to bring here. It's what many would call third-way leadership, where you're not, you know, when you're talking about politics, you 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 resist the urge to go all in with the political left and conflate it with your Christianity or go all in with the political right and conflate your politics with your Christianity there. Uh, you know, we're going third way where we want to affirm that which is good uh, on both the, you know, in both blue state and red state sensibilities and critique prophetically what is not good and what is not supportive of the causes of Christ. And, and it's created an interesting dynamic because we have in our church Um, public uh, servants who work in politics. We have some career politicians, uh, some of them Republicans, others of them Democrats. And we also, just by virtue of where our four different congregations are situated throughout the city of Nashville, uh, we have some congregations that are in those zip codes that went 72% uh, red state. And we also have uh, you know, congregational dynamics where 90% of, of the congregation mm-hmm. went uh, blue state, if we're listening to, uh, you know, sort of the statisticians. And so we have both citywide and within our congregations and on our pastoral staff, a, a, a pretty robust diversity uh, perspective, which creates tension, as you might imagine, and, and also some really clarifying, uh, sharpening conversations as well for those who can hang in there with it.
1: Wow. What an intriguing scenario that you have in Nashville. Is is that similar to what you experienced in New York? I mean, are you discovering some differences between your experience in New York City and in Nashville, or similarities?
2: Well, I mean, the climate's different, right? I mean, New York, especially now, New York is going through a, a, a really rough season. Uh, with COVID and all of the aftermath of, of COVID, but politically, I, I think the city of New York is is bright blue, right? But I think our church there, Redeemer Presbyterian, was quite diverse politically. Uh, you, you know, you, you you would have you know kind of Wall Street people and and sort of white collar professionals that you know probably. Mixed politically, but but slanting toward the right, and then you'd have your kind of your younger professionals and your younger creatives, and your internationally minded people who tended to to you know be mixed but but lean to the left, and so uh, it was a pretty robust mix, I think, as I recall, and you know a lot of our message here at Christ Press has been you know around the ministry of reconciliation, and it started with. Generational differences, because I came into a, a church that needed revitalization, and it was primarily older generations, baby boomer, right leaning, uh, you know, Republican ish, and and and, um, you know, we set out to you know build an intergenerational kind of rebuild an intergenerational dynamic that that was as broadly embracing as possible uh, as the gospel is and as Jesus is, and that includes politics, and so. Um, kind of the ministry of reconciliation in, in every category uh, of bringing Jews and Gentiles together, and everything that Jews and Gentiles symbolize, has been a, a central theme of the life of our church and the message of our church. And it's 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 played out uh, you know over over the course of eight years. We've lost some people over it. I, I, it it's certainly not been all rosy because not everybody wants third way. Not everybody wants to be in community with people who think differently than they do. But it's been a matter of conviction for us that, that if Christ includes them, then we have to too.
1: So you've described uh, a third way as a message, um, reconciliation as a message. Uh, these are broad categories. How explicit mm-hmm. did you get in your messages um, during this election season?
2: I got pretty explicit and also um, you know, did so in a way that Particularly partisan, more partisan believers are scratching their heads, wondering where in the world I'm coming from. Right? Uh, I I think people, probably the 85% in the middle, uh, and and I would say probably the majority are are people who really are drawn toward toward third way um, messaging. And that's not just in our church, I think that's true with my audience beyond our church, you know, people who read my stuff and listen to me and and so on. I think probably there's an 85 to 90 percent people who are really eager to live in the tension. Uh, And then you've got maybe that 10 percent, 15 percent on both the left and the right. Those are the ones who seem most perplexed uh, about Bold, non-committal, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. to a, to a party, right? And and we're pretty bold in our non-committal, uh, non-committal, uh, you know, uh, posture. And and we we have been very explicit. Like one thing that I've said in in my sermon the uh, week before, the Sunday before the the election, the the 2020 election, was that I think, um, you know, because I think that that where we ought to what well, we ought to adopt a logs and specs. Uh, uh, posture with our politics, uh, where we critique our own party more than we critique the other party. Uh, That that feels more Christian to me than just pointing fingers and lobbing grenades. And so I said to our congregation, I said, I think the loudest laments uh, in the United States right now over abortion should be from Christian Democrats. And I think that the loudest laments uh, over Children at the border separated from their parents uh, should come from Christian Republicans. And as you might imagine, I got a few extra emails uh, the next week. Uh, (laughs) But but it's so worth it. And it it creates these pastoral opportunities to lean in with people and to, to affirm where they're coming from. But the truth of the matter is, you know, Matthew was a government tax collector for Rome. He collected taxes for a system that was opposed to, to the faith and opposed to Judaism and Christianity. And he collected taxes for that state. And Simon was a zealot, uh, which, which was the party that that believed that people of faith should not pay taxes to Rome. And that whole party formed around that thought. And Jesus chose both of them to be in his 12 disciple group of 12 disciples. And uh, we have no record of either one of them leaving his political affiliation. Uh and, and in fact, they're described in retrospect as a tax collector and as a zealot um, by one of the gospel writers, Matthew, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is really telling. And we don't have record of them bickering with each other. Uh, we have plenty of record of the disciples bickering among each other, but, but no political bickering between Matthew and Simon is recorded. And what we do know is they lived and ministered and served and died together as, as brothers uh, for three years. And so... There's something about the kingdom of God that transcends those partisan loyalties, even though there may be legitimate reasons to have partisan loyalties in a partisan landscape.
1: Scott, that's a very compelling vision that you lay out. The the log and spec principle is um, really fantastic and clearly articulated. And uh, what you describe as the life experience and partnership in ministry between uh, a Matthew and a Simon and that vision uh, for what the church and followers of Jesus can be like, Uh, it's very compelling. Uh, In some ways, this was the vision behind a statement that the NAE had put out in partnership with World Relief, a statement that we had placed in the Washington Post that was uh, titled, A Call to Civic Responsibility for the Health of the Nation. And you were one of the signers uh, Mm -hmm. of that statement. Why was it important for you to sign? What was your thinking behind that process?
2: It was important to sign because it was because for me, because uh, of the emphasis on uh, bringing Christians together around common ground, uh, both the common ground of affirming that which is good and beautiful and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy. Basically, all of the political causes, um, right and left, you know, those that are claimed by the right and those that are claimed by the left. you know, womb to tomb, right? Uh, the unborn, the, you know, or let's say the quartet of the vulnerable, right? Uh, Walter Storff's quartet of the vulnerable from Zechariah 710. The, you know, the, the widow, uh, the orphan, uh, the asylum seeker or immigrant refugee, and the poor, right? So, so you've got right-leaning emphases that seek to cover some of that quartet. You've got left-leaning emphases that seek to cover some of that quartet. And what you all did, was you brought it all together uh, for what we can all advocate together. Uh, you know, politics aside, uh, we can all advocate together for these just causes as Christians, first and foremost, not first and foremost, as Democrats, or Republicans, but first and foremost as Christians. And we can also collectively come together and prophetically speak truth to power uh, on these issues where American politics are actually uh, viola- violating uh, the kingdom of God, or 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 creating a resistance movement against the movement of Jesus and His kingdom. So I felt like your 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 work, which I, I thank you for um, and commend you for, enabled pastors everywhere and Christian leaders everywhere to have a voice for reason and sanity. And another thing that I really appreciated is you didn't bash any politicians. You you, you didn't you didn't go after anybody personally. You, you clearly took great care not to land uh in in a partisan place or even in a in a place that could be legitimately interpreted as as partisan uh if that makes sense you're you're leading with the kingdom of god and so um i'm all about that and was honored to to be invited to sign
1: that's great yeah it's certainly a desire uh, that pastors have that we at the nae had with that statement um to to lead with kingdom values. And yet we had an election. That's Mm -hmm. the reality of our civic life. Um, Some people in our churches uh, are thrilled with the results of the election. And just as some are thrilled, others are devastated. There are plenty of people in between. What do you say to these groups of people? Are there different messages for the different categories? The same message for everyone? How, How do you lead And speak into that situation.
2: Well, I mean, obviously, you have to do it sensitively for people who are feeling anxious, you know, overly anxious or overly elated, right? You don't want to shame people for being overly elated, um, and you don't want to, you know, guilt people for being overly anxious. Uh, And but but we do, as the messengers of Jesus, um, want to embrace our role is helping others as well as ourselves to put all of this, you know, sort of American politics into its proper context. And um, I think it's wonderful that whenever we have a presidential election, the next season we go into is a season of Advent, which emphasizes Mm -hmm. that the government will be on Jesus's shoulders and of the increase of his reign and government, there will be no end. Um, he is the one that's not voted out. <laughs> you know, he's the one that's not dethroned. Uh, he is the one that does not have a term limit. And, uh, and so whatever outcomes politically we might, during whatever season, be elated by, we, we can't hold on too tightly to hope uh, because it's only a matter of time before this leader, this administration, this philosophy is taken out of power. Uh, Or if we're we're so anxious and devastated, uh, again, we're talking about a a temporal situation. And uh, we're also talking about a Christian reality, which is true of all time, uh, at all times. And that is that we're aliens and strangers. That's Mm -hmm. our identity with respect to our relationship with the world is we are aliens and strangers. Our citizenship is elsewhere. You know, Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of the faith right there, they're all looking ahead to a better country. It says uh, that none of them received the promises of the good life, the flourishing world that they all dream of. None of them, it says, received the promises in their lifetime. And so we, you know, whenever we think that that you know a politician is going to bring God's kingdom on heaven, on earth as it is in heaven, we we I think lost our focus. Uh, now, of course, we can celebrate leaders that that. Amplify truth, beauty, and justice in their leadership, we can always celebrate that, but always with a, with a measuredness because, uh, you know, we ought not put our hope in princes and chariots, but in the name of the Lord, our God. Easier said Scott, than done, but... Yeah,
1: <laughs> you're right. It's very, very much easier said than done. Uh, Scott, one of the things that I appreciated about what you've just said is underneath it is an affirmation of God's sovereignty, his control um, over our times, um, and then also you've added this sense that uh, our ultimate home uh, lies before us and not in the present as we travel as aliens and strangers in this world. And yet uh, with that mentality, we can also um, be tempted to think that, well, God is in control, our citizenship is in heaven or there's a, a country that awaits us. So we don't really need to be engaged in the present policy issues. I mean that's all going to burn and go away and the new heavens and the new earth. And so why, why bother? Why, why get wrapped up uh, in all of this? What would you say to that perspective?
2: Uh, I would go back to Matthew, uh, the government worker, uh, who painstakingly reminded us in the writing of his gospel that the kingdom has already come. It's already here. And uh, it's not only our prayer that Jesus' kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. It is also our work. Uh, it is also our um, effort to you know, do our part to reclaim uh, the dominion that already belongs to Christ over people, places, and things. You know, as Abraham Kuyper famously said, uh, "You know, God looks at every square inch of His universe and declares it's mine." And uh, we have a right as Christians to um to lay claim uh, on behalf of Christ, what belongs to Christ, not by, not through coercion, uh, not through dominance and Darwinian tax tactics, uh, but through persuasion uh, that comes through a life of love. Right. And this is the, this is the irony. The more we detach our hearts from dependence on our citizenship in, 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 in the earthly kingdom, the better citizens, the more life-giving citizens we become for the earthly kingdom. I mean, C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly, he said, if you read history, you will find that those who did the most and the best for the present world were the ones who thought the most of the next. In other words, to be more heavenly minded is to be more earthly good, not less. Uh, you know, as is evidenced by the fact that every single Ivy league university, uh, except for one was founded by Christian ministers and lay people, you know, you coming from Boston, you can relate to that, right? You've walked the campus of Harvard and you've seen the scriptures, you know, decorating the, you know, the doorways of every building. You've no doubt been to Princeton and visited the graveyard of, you know, the greats like Jonathan Edwards and Archibald Alexander, and you know, the others, you know, these great theologians, um, let's not forget that, 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 that the greatest institutions, uh, I, you know, in, in, our, in our world have oftentimes had Christians at the forefront. Christians invented the hospital. Uh, and think even now of, of how engaged believers in Christ are in, in health care, and mercy and justice work around the world. What, what would the world be like if you removed compassion efforts of Christians Abolition of the slave trade. You know, Wilberforce, uh, in the name of Christ, was was at the lead of that uh, civil rights movement. King, in the name of Christ, was was at the forefront of those efforts. You know, not to mention John Perkins and and, and so many others. Um, I mean, you could you could go on and on and on. Uh, orphan care movement with with George Mueller again, in the name of Christ. Um, you know, attacking you know, the evil of of homeless childhood, and, and you know, in, in, to advance the good of every child having a home, as far as it depends on us. And so, um, you know, as as Lewis also said, in that context, Christianity is a fighting religion. You know, we, we, we look into the world, and we see what's gone wrong with it, and we fight for the good. Uh, we, we fight for flourishing, especially human flourishing, but also flourishing of institutions and systems, uh, and so on. So, I feel like I'm saying a lot. I've got a lot to say on that. Mm. Um, no,
1: this is fantastic. Very. I mean, it's a beautiful uh, vision of marking out uh, what what believers, what followers of Jesus can do can, when they are focused on ultimate kingdom values. They have yes. become really earthly good, and you've given us yes. many wonderful examples of that.
2: Can I, can I say one that. more? Can I say one more yeah. thing on that, Walter? Um, so, sorry to interrupt, but, but but here's the beauty of it we do not need imperial support in order to do the work of God effectively on earth. And in fact, the kingdom of God has advanced most rapidly and most thoroughly in societies that have been opposed to Christianity and where the, where the, where the government has offered no support and, and oftentimes opposition and violence against people of faith uh, as our own Bibles uh, evidence to us, right? There are two books that I can think of in the Bible that were written by people who weren't either enslaved, uh, in prison, uh, facing, uh, the, the real and present danger of persecution, or had just been taken into exile or were about to be taken into exile song of Solomon. That's in its own category and Ecclesiastes, which was written by a rich, powerful, miserable man. All of the other books of the Bible were written by people who did not have imperial support. Uh, I mean, lest we forget, 11 of the 12 disciples died as martyrs. Add Paul to that. So that's 12 of the 13. And and then, uh, uh, you know, John dies of natural causes while in prison uh, for his faith. And so the the beautiful reality, the good news is we do not need imperial support uh, in in order for the kingdom of God to move forward. Uh, And and so we we don't have to wait for the government to align uh, before we can start doing our work.
1: Again, thank you, it's really great perspective. Um, You've used a certain theme of ideas um, of speaking prophetically, uh, truth to power. Uh, You've also talked in in terms of the fight uh, that's necessary, quoting C.S. Lewis. And now you've described a situation in which the advancement of the gospel uh, has often taken place when authority has even opposed, not just um, merely you know, sanctioned, but actually opposed uh, mm. faith. So how are we to think of authority, particularly if we deeply disagree with that authority, and even if that authority is leading our country astray from our perspective, how, how are we to engage with that authority?
2: Um, not like we have in the last eight years. Mm. Uh, and I say eight to cover two diametrically opposed administrations. Um, You know, President Obama uh, had his enemies within the evangelical world, and um, despite what the, you know, 81% statistical narratives tell us, um, I, I think the vast majority of evangelicals would, if not openly, would secretly say, yeah, it's been kind of a real embarrassment to have to answer to certain behaviors as an evangelical. Um, because of the way that evangelicals have been lumped in in the public narratives, Uh, some for legitimate reasons and, and and others for not so legitimate reasons have been lumped into the narrative of all that, that Donald Trump represents. And, and so, you know, you had right-leaning Christians bashing president Obama, kind of doing the not my president thing with president Obama and you had left-leaning uh, or maybe moderate uh, as well uh, evangelicals saying the same thing about Donald Trump. Um, now it's one thing to speak truth to power about the issues. It's one. It's another. It's quite another thing to attack um, a person, right? I, and I think of King David with Saul. Uh, if anybody ever had a reason to strike back, it was David, and David had an opportunity. And he didn't. Uh, he, he even repented for wanting to, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, spoke honorably, but truthfully. May the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, he's making a statement of character. We both know I'm a better man than you. And, and if the Lord were to judge us on the basis of, of my character and yours, I'm winning. However, uh, as long as you're the king, I'm going to honor you. The same thing with with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they deal with Nebuchadnezzar. No, we will not bow to your, uh, you know, to your idol, to your monument, to yourself. We we worship the Lord and the Lord our God alone. We'll accept the consequences if we have to. Um, uh, And and yet they speak with such respectful language that they they honor his title, the king. O king, live forever. Uh, and then, of course, there's the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, who's, who's telling us to, you know, to respect those in governing authority. Who's in power at that point in time? Nero, who's going to end up executing the Apostle Paul? Uh, and then Peter, fear God, honor the king. Who's in power? Nero, who's going to execute the Apostle Peter? And so, um, you know, there's an honoring of the position speaking truth to power i think is in the same category as righteous anger right there's raging anger and there's righteous anger raging anger attacks people and assassinates character that's what raging anger does righteous righteous anger attacks problems and you know that's part of what you all did in your you know the document that we're talking about that with it that i had the privilege of signing along with with mm-hmm. many others is you were attacking problems not people mm-hmm. um But the people who are responsible for those problems have to listen uh, because it was a public voice and it was a collective Mm -hmm. voice. And and, and they're they're forced in a position where they have to pay attention um, because partially or in the whole, they're responsible for the problems and and, or at least they have the power to address the problems. And so it's a fine line, but attacking problems, attacking people, very different thing. Mm -hmm.
1: You've uh, alluded to the public nature of this statement that you had signed on to, that the NE had written. A lot of discussion has been um, raised about the nature of the public witness of the church during this time period. So not only have we been uh, concerned with what's the impact of this politicized season uh, that we've found ourselves in internally within the church of families that are maybe at odds with each other, Mm -hmm. uh, even biological families, but certainly the spiritual family of God that finds itself on this side or that side of the issue. But I'm curious about any advice you would have uh, for Christians to engage on political issues with society at large, with non-Christian neighbors, uh, with their communities, their neighborhoods. So not just the dialogue within the church and finding this third way you're describing. But what about our engagement with people outside of the church um, in this polarized environment we find ourselves?
2: It's a great question. 1 Corinthians 5 comes immediately to mind, Walter, where Paul says it is not our business to judge those outside the church. And so it's really hard to think of a, scenario in which a Christian would legitimately get into a spitting match with a non-Christian on politics. Um, As I think about the life of the early church, um, their engagement was uh, love your neighbor. Uh, It wasn't defeat your neighbor in a political or ideological argument. Defeat your neighbor was not on the radar for them, either in the world of ideas uh, or in the, uh, in, in the world of, of action. Um, you know, for so many centuries, the Jewish people had expected a military savior, a political savior, and they got Jesus instead, uh, who, who died as, as a declared enemy of the state. And, um, and yet, you know, a lot, a lot like William Wallace in Braveheart, right? Uh, or a lot like Samson in the Old Testament. Uh, he accomplished more in his death than he did in his life. Uh, and and uh, the joke's on you, killers, you know? Uh, and <laughs> you look at the early church and how the, the moral fabric of Rome from the time of Nero to the time of Constantine. So that, that, that's, you know, from first century to third century AD. You know, a couple hundred years you know, at that time, three or four generations uh, it took for a life of love on the ground in the pedestrian sense of the word in neighborhoods and communities to take. Uh, uh, where, you know, the moral fabric, where, where they're, you know, throwing children in dumpsters, where, you know, you think our sexual revolution has is, is gone haywire. I mean, early Rome was was, I mean, pedophilia was legalized, prostitution. Was legalized was legalized and celebrated. Uh, you know, all this, you know, debased, you know, dehumanizing things happening. Women were, were treated like property instead of humans. Um, and on and on, you know, class warfare, all of that stuff. Strong eating the weak, very Darwinian, you know, s- setup in terms of the structure of society. And, and Christians had no power. They didn't get tax breaks for their charitable contributions. Um, you know, they didn't have access to you know, the halls of power, uh, you know, in, in general. And so what they did was in the pedestrian way, they, in, a, in an on-the-ground, in their neighborhoods way, they, they cared for Rome's sick and Rome's poor, the widows and the orphan, you know, the quartet of the vulnerable, the alien, the stranger, and the refugee. Uh, they nailed it. They made that their life's mission, uh, to, to tend to the people that the government's not doing a good job taking care of, and to bring them in to draw out the dignity that's already theirs. And by the third century AD, the moral fabric of Rome is utterly transformed. Christianity is, is more popular than the emperor, and and so Emperor Constantine decides, hey, we're going to conflate Christianity with with politics now. We're going we're going to put the government, you know, their version of Washington, right? We're going to put Rome and and Jesus together. Uh, and what happened after that? The, the church started to die. <laughs> you know, the the salt lost its savor as it always has when Christianity and 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 politics have gotten into bed together. I mean, a great case study would be be England as well, the Church of England. Um, uh, and so, I don't even remember what your question was, but no. but I hope I'm answering it.
1: <laughs> yes, no, it, it's it's really fantastic. You've given us um, a historical context for understanding how we could uh, approach the present um, and the nature of the church's engagement with society at large. Thank you. We have covered a lot of terrain here, Scott. I so appreciate uh, the thoughts, responses that you've offered to us. As we close out our time, um, what is the opportunity for the church in this post-election season?
2: Well, At the risk of shameless promotion, uh, I, I, you know, the, the book you mentioned, A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them, is my answer to that question with a caveat. The caveat is that when I wrote that book, I had no idea that 2020 would turn out the way it is. I had no idea that it would be a quote unquote timely book, right? Because it was two years before the facts. So I can take no credit for being any sort of prophet. Um, but um, I, I do believe that in a in, in a in a in an environment that is as toxic and polarized uh, as we are, racialized, radicalized, et cetera, uh, where everybody's looking for somebody to judge and punish, uh, out of fear of being judged and punished themselves. Everybody's looking for an echo chamber to join. Everybody's looking for a a tribe, you know, to gather around a common enemy together. What if Christians assumed more of a Mister Rogers uh, posture? Right? Uh, Isn't that an interesting case study? I wonder why Mister Rogers is so popular again, uh, so many decades after the fact. I mean, the one shining quality of Mister Rogers is that he was a gentle man, and uh, I think that. his ascending you know, re-emergence as a cultural icon um, with the, the recent documentary, as well as the Hollywood film about his life, says something about what I, what I believe to be a silent majority of people uh, in, in the American West who are longing for something other than us against them, uh, who are longing for kindness, for gentleness, for empathy and I think what Mr. Rogers offers, uh, you know, in his, you know, sort of persona is, is right at the heart of what Christians have the resources to offer to the world of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentle answer turns away wrath, Proverbs 15.1. You want to fight against a wrathful culture? Start with gentleness um, and self-control. And so... A kindness movement, I think would be awesome. and And I think that it might be our only chance. I don't think we have anything else in our in our quiver uh, to to reestablish a, a credible witness uh, other than maybe the gentleness of Christ and the lowliness of Christ as we engage our neighbors.
1: Our guest on today's conversation has been Scott Saul, Senior Pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Scott.
0: The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals, or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.